Turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of Isaiah. We're continuing our Advent series. Last week we looked at hope. We lit the first candle of Advent. That candle represents the hope we have in Christ. That he is the hope for mankind. It is only through him that man can enter into right relationship with God. This week's theme is peace. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was called to his prophetic ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. Scholars would say that he wrote this book around the 8th century B.C. And this book is a beautiful, beautiful understanding of who God is. In Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah writes that God is the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 57, Isaiah writes that God is the one who is lifted up, but who dwells with the contrite and lowly. Isaiah also writes about God's sovereignty over the whole world. In Isaiah 6, we can read that it is God who is the cleanser of sin. And in Isaiah 52, Isaiah writes how the gospel is the good news of happiness. You could say that the purpose of the book of Isaiah was to tell of God's salvation through the Messiah. One scholar said Isaiah presents a sweeping theological vision spanning from creation to new creation, a movement achieved by God's redemptive work that he shares with his people. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, and let's look at verse 6. That's going to be our key text today. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord, um, I'm an imperfect man and an imperfect pastor and an imperfect preacher. And I, I pray that you would take this imperfect sermon and do what only you can do with it. That is to instruct us, to encourage us, to help us grow more and more in love with you. Please help us to be a local church that loves you that loves your word, that loves the Savior, and a local church that loves one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for the water. If you were to read Isaiah chapter 8, you would see that it ends in darkness and gloom There are corrupt and wicked people who are seeking wisdom from mediums while rejecting the wisdom of God. These people were angry and hostile toward God in word, thought, and deed. And they were living lives of filth, spiritual famine, and restless roaming. Then in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, Isaiah writes, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So we read that the people were suffering. They were oppressed internally and externally. Internally, their minds and hearts were darkened. They knew the truth, but they did not value the truth. They did not live according to it, and they did not desire for the truth to be their guide. Externally, foreign armies had invaded them and had made them slaves. And this was, in fact, the judgment of God upon them for their rebellion against him. And through all of this, God's remnant cry for liberation. God promises his Old Testament remnant that a triumphal brightness will come like something never seen before. And Isaiah writes in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This light would be the light of the world. This light would recover the sight of the blind and would free captives from spiritual darkness. This light would make the broken whole again. This light would extend brightly, not just to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. This light has a name. His name is Jesus. And in verses 5 and 6, Isaiah writes, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. When that light shines into the darkness, the people respond with overpowering joy. This joy is likened to the time, Isaiah saying, when Midian was defeated during the era of the judges, when God used Gideon and his small army to defeat the oppressive Midianites. Israel at that time was powerless to save itself, and they were enslaved by the Midianites. And because God is all-powerful, he caused the Midianite army to turn on themselves and destroy one another. And as a result, the oppressive yoke that had weighed on the people was shattered. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah is writing that one would come who would break Satan's seemingly unbreakable yoke of sin and death on the people of this world. Although Satan thought that he was destroying Jesus on the cross, it was his kingdom that was being destroyed. And we who were enslaved by Satan through fear of death have been released to serve God with joy. Hebrews 2.14 states, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise put uh, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of sin, that is, the devil. By dying, Jesus defeated death 
and Satan. By dying, we Christians were liberated from the tyranny of sin. The oppressor Satan has been defeated, brothers and sisters. Our liberator not only defeated all the forces of evil that day on Calvary, but he put a final end to the conflict itself on that last day. I can't wait for his to re- him, his, him to return. I'm so excited about Jesus. You know, I, when I was in college, guys were, used to say, you know, I, I hope he doesn't return before I get married because I really want to get married first. I'm like, I hope he comes now. <laughs> you know, but then Star Wars came out and I'm like, oh. <laughs> You know, I'd like to see that episode before you come back, Lord. I know. What can I say? I'm married, so that already happened. And I think of something else. But hey, I guess that if he comes back before Thursday, he could always tell me about it in heaven, right? It's his prerogative. He can if he wants, if it matters. I don't think I'll care too much about it then. But anyway... I don't know why I'm getting on that. I just want to share that with you. It's not in my notes. And that's what happens when things are not in my notes. I just go off on a tangent and don't even know what to do. That's why I have to write everything down. But I can't wait for his return. But look at what Isaiah says in verse 6. He says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This verse contains the perfect proof of the deity of the Messiah, the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. And Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born. Now remember, this prophecy was written at least a 100 years before Israel was taken into the Babylonian captivity, nearly 600 years before the birth of the Savior. This conqueror will appear in a way that will surprise many. This conqueror who works stunning victory, as we saw in verses 1 through 5, is now revealed to be a child that will be brought forth. The gift of divine grace to sinners like me. A child. Born like every other person. Conceived in his mother's womb. He would be made subject to all the limitations of our humanity. He would enter our human race fully human as a man. He would grow like we grow. He would get thirsty like we get thirsty. He would get hungry like we would get hungry. He would get tired like we would get tired. He had emotions like we have emotions. He laughed. He wept. He slept. He came as the second Adam to triumph where the first Adam failed. Jesus became a man to reveal God to man. To live under the law and obey at every point where we disobey and to give us his perfect righteousness. He was born so that he would be able to die because God cannot die and Jesus must become a man in order to die. The wages of sin, our sin is death. And in order to save us, he had to be able to die. Therefore, he had to become a man. 
Jesus has come as a human being so that he can endure the temptations men face, yet be without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I love that part. Jesus faced a full range of temptations when he was a man. He can sympathize with us and he can relate with our struggles today. And here in Isaiah 9, the prophet envisions a time when God Almighty will bring forth deliverance to the northern regions of the promised land from sadness and anguish and contempt. He foresees in Galilee the beginning of the Messiah's worldwide mission and the joy and the peace that will bring the one who would break into the darkness of man's sin and bring life-giving light so that those who are born again of the Spirit would proclaim His excellence. And He is excellent indeed. And we as Christians proclaim His excellence to the world around us. We proclaim His excellence in our prayers to Him. And Isaiah goes on, he says, to us, a son is given. This implies the deity of Christ. He existed before his birth as the second person of the Trinity. He was the pre-incarnate Christ. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 states, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I got to tell you, and I'm, I'm again going off my notes here. After I got saved and I read the scriptures, God just illuminated. He showed me things that I never knew in the word. I never knew Jesus was around before he came in a manger. I was never taught that he was pre-incarnate. I thought he was conceived and boom, he existed. I had no idea until I started reading the scriptures that he existed for all eternity. Had no idea. Don't you love the word of God? Aren't you encouraged by the word of God when you open it? God shows us who he is. I was in darkness. And God revealed to me through his word that his son is eternal. Think about all the people out there who don't understand that or don't know that because they don't read the word. And their church doesn't teach them that. And they thought, boom, pop, came out of Mary and here's Jesus. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's not been created. He always was. The incarnation is the central miracle of Christianity. The most grand and wonderful of all the things that God has ever done. The fact that God the Father, who loved us so much, even though we are hostile to him, would give us his son is amazing. 
The fact that God the Son descended from heaven to take the form of a helpless human being to grow into a man to conquer sin and death is absolutely incredible. The fact that the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily bodily form is amazing. Walk this earth. God walked this earth. God sat down and had lunch with people. God went to weddings and laughed with people. God attended funerals and cried with people. God hung out with people. Undeserving people. The sinless son of God was given to us as a babe in swaddling cloth. His mother laid him in a manger made of wood. The sinless son of God was given to us as the the perfect sacrifice for sin. And his heavenly father nailed him to the cross made of wood for us. There's verse we know oh so well. Everybody, even the world knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God reached out to a rebellious people and blessed us with the gift of gifts. He sent his son to redeem us, to purchase us, and to make us members of his family. He punished his own son so that we could have eternity with him. What a God. A son is given. Given for you and for me. And he laid his life down of his own accord. He came to this earth to die. And he knew it full well before he came. From eternity past, he knew that he would come to die for sinners. A son is given. And Isaiah goes on to write, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. This shows Christ's absolute sovereignty. This child who is born, this son who is given, he is invested with all authority in heaven and earth for all authority has given to him, has been given to him from the father in heaven and on earth. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He will be the greater son of David and the greatest king who will rule upon the throne of David. And we can read about that in verse 7 of this chapter. But he will also be the absolute sovereign over all the nations of the world. And he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. He will rule over the affairs of providence on his shoulder This child born in a manger is laid the weight of the government of his people. He, at last, is the answer to the quest for perfect and lasting government. His shoulders will bear the weight and they will not buckle because God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every other name. 
That at his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The heart of every king, every ruler is in Jesus' hands. The rise and the fall of nations is according to Jesus' eternal decree. Apart from him, man can do nothing. He rules and he reigns in righteousness as Lord of all. We don't make him Lord. We can't make him Lord. He is Lord. He was Lord and he forever will be Lord. He will uphold and undertake the support and direction of every government upon this earth. And not only that, brothers and sisters, we here today as individuals, we are to live our lives bowing to the supreme sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us must live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you love Jesus? Are you by grace imitating Jesus in the way you live? Are you obeying him? Is your desire to live for him and glorify him? Never in the history of the world has a baby been born with such divine authority. This should encourage us today. As we read the headlines every day and we see the the nations and the rulers of the earth in an uproar. We see the nations taking a stand against God and his Christ. We see nations calling good evil and evil good. We see nations passing laws that are contrary to God's Laws. It should encourage us today because he who sits on the throne laughs at the wicked. That mere men, mere nations would revolt against God and try to dethrone him. That mankind would somehow think that we can, in our arrogance, devise plans and war against the sovereign creator of the universe and win. He sits in the heavens and laughs because he is king. He is the king of kings forever and ever, and his kingdom shall have no end. So the nations can rage all they want, but they are but a drop in the bucket to God. He can wipe them out as quickly as he can set them up. God is not mocked. Isaiah continues. And he says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This is exciting news. That the one who carries the government upon his shoulder has wisdom like no other. He knows what is best for every situation. He is invested with all wisdom. The word translated wonderful here means exceptional or distinguished. It's also used in the Old Testament as uh, supernatural, that he is able to work supernaturally. And how true that is of Jesus. 
He works supernaturally. He turned water into wine, a supernatural event. He cast out demons, supernatural event. He healed the sick, the diseased, the handicapped, supernatural events. He raised people from the dead, supernatural events. As the wonderful counselor, he is the only wise God whose wisdom is far behind, beyond human capabilities. And while on this earth, he always knew what to say and when to reach out to those in need. Even his enemies said they had never heard anything like what he said before by any other. He rules and he reigns with deep divine wisdom and gives us wisdom and guidance in our daily lives. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Jesus is the counselor of counselors. Where CB and I may have blind spots as men, as pastors, the wonderful counselor has none. If you have issues in life, whether it be personal or interpersonal, go to Jesus first. His counsel is perfect. His counsel is exceptional. His counsel is is distinguished. If you have issues about decision-making, go to Jesus first. His counsel is perfect. It's exceptional. If you have questions about your plans, present or future, go to Jesus first. Ask him for wisdom, and he will give it to you. You know, some of you here today may think, I'm in a marriage and it's in a mess. It's in crisis. There's no hope. I want to encourage you today, the wonderful counselor does the supernatural. He can restore anything he wants. He's able. He's the wonderful counselor. Go to him. Ask him for help. Ask him for whatever help he can give in whatever crisis it is that is in your life. Go to his word. 66 books of wisdom at your fingertips. Everyone here needs the wisdom of God every day. In everything we do, we need God's wisdom. And he's our wonderful counselor. He helps us. And not only is Jesus the wonderful counselor, but he's also the mighty God. The mighty God. I love this. I was telling CB earlier, I finished this sermon this morning at about 8.15. Got up at 2 o'clock. I was very nervous because I only had 13 pages. By the time I finished, it was at 28 and I got nervous again. Because I was like, oh gosh, I went from a devotional to like a two-hour lecture. And I was like, oh no. So I got nervous and I said, Lord, it is what it is. I'm just going to trust you in this. Of course, this is in my notes again. I'm running on a tangent here. But I totally forgot what I was going to say because it's not in my notes. See, it's the chronic fatigue that I have. But anyway, 
I was talking to CB this morning and I said, you know, I'm just going to have to trust God with this sermon and trust that he will use it for his glory and help the people of our congregation and forgive me if there's anything that's crazy in it. But Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us as prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 7 when Isaiah writes, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I love that name. If I ever have another baby, I want to name him Emmanuel. It's a Spanish name too. You know, I mean, it's not here, but a lot of Spanish people name their children Emmanuel. So I'm like, I can get away with that. I'm Puerto Rican. I can get away with that, right? <laughs> anyway, this child, this son is the mighty God. This speaks plainly and directly to the undiminished deity of Christ. He has the power to bring to pass the counsel that he gives us. He can bring all of his plans to pass. Jesus has the power to create from nothing something. He sustains the entire universe by the word of his power. He alone forgives sin. He raises the dead. He has, Jesus has, all power in the final judgment. Jesus can do only what God can do. Therefore, Jesus is mighty God. And as we celebrate Advent, it must always be with this perspective that the one we sing to, the one we worship, is undiminished deity who took upon himself perfect humanity to become the God-man. And this God who came to earth as a babe in a manger is a mighty warrior. He fights for us. Deuteronomy 10, 17 states, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty, and awesome. Mighty and awesome. Remember that when trials come your way. Remember that when you receive news about your health that you don't want to receive. Remember that when your brothers and sisters, your earthly father and mother forsake you because of the gospel. That God is the great God. He's the mighty God. He's the awesome God. And that his might can thwart his enemies as he did with the Midianites. He is the absolutely divine one who is the omnipotent, powerful God who will one day return to earth and slay all of those who do not entrust their lives to him. Jesus is so awesome that he can bring order to chaos. He can bring order to our troubled lives. Nothing we face is too difficult for him to handle. And I'm preaching to myself this morning. What a God. What a Savior. What a Counselor. There's no need to doubt 
brothers and sisters. His word is true. There's no need to fret. His word is true. He's awesome. So no need to worry. But we do. But his word is true. He is mighty God. He is greater than our fears. He is greater than our worries. He is greater than our fretting. He's greater than our doubting. He can do mighty supernatural things as recorded in his word. And if he can do those things in his word, he can certainly help you and he can help me. If he could divide a sea into two, he can help me and he can help you. If he can raise Lazarus from the dead, he surely can help us in our trials. Nothing is too difficult for our mighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, and he's the eternal father. Now, ascribing fatherhood to Jesus is unusual. And this term here is not interchangeable with the Trinitarian title, Father, just to make things clear. The first person and the second person of the Trinity are two distinct persons in the Godhead. What this reads is that Jesus is the Father of eternity. He is the source of eternity. He is the creator of eternity. Micah 5.2 states, that it states, O you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. As far back as we can go into eternity past, Jesus is there. He has already existed. He has always existed. He has stepped out of eternity and into time. And let this encourage you because Jesus is always previous to everything that we will ever occur or anything that will ever happen in our lives. He's already seen it. It's previous to, he's previous to those things. He knows what our future holds. He knows what your tomorrow will be like. He's ordained your next breath. As king of all creation, he is creator and sustainer of all things, including your life and your circumstances. That's hard sometimes to think that God is the creator of the trials that are in my life. But he has a purpose for those trials. And in a nutshell, it's that we would glorify him as we walk through those trials. He loves you. He loves you endlessly. And he does play a fatherly role toward us as Christians. He governs. He 
He's tender-hearted. He's kind. He's compassionate. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what's best for us. He has the eternal perspective and knows what lies ahead of us. Jesus, our wonderful counselor, speaks to us from an eternal perspective as one who has crafted his plans for us from eternally past. Psalm 139. All the days ordained for me were written in your book even before one came to be. He knows when I'm going to have my last breath. He knows how it's going to happen. And he tells me I don't have to fear it. Because he overcame death. It's funny. Not in my notes. But you know, the scripture says when Christians die, they... They fall asleep, it says, you know, to wake up in the arms of Jesus, if you will. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his, is the death of his saints. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So why should we fear? Our flesh fears, yes. But when we get our eyes on Jesus and we meditate on those verses, the fear diminishes because we know that our lives are forever. And it's going to be a lot better there than it is here. I look forward to that day. I don't look forward to the suffering in it, but I look forward to that day when he calls me home. His, my destiny is in his hands. Your destiny is in mighty God's hands. You're in his grip. And he's embracing you as a father does gently, yet firmly keeping you close and guarded. And finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And this is what the entire sermon is supposed to be about, right? Peace. Finally, we get there. Jesus is the ruler who will bring peace. The word in the Hebrew is shalom. How many of you ever heard of shalom? It's a popular word, isn't it? Even Gentiles know that word. This word encompasses all of the blessings of the kingdom that God has for us. This word speaks of well-being, wholeness of life, and wholeness of blessing from the Lord. It begins certainly within our hearts as he gives us the peace, tranquility, and the calmness and absence of fear that only Christ can give to us. As the Prince of Peace, he alone can make us whole. As the Prince of Peace, he alone can command his blessedness to be upon our lives. And there's no better blessing for a person than to know Jesus Christ as Lord. When the angels appeared to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, they sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those which whom he is pleased. Mankind cannot please God apart from Jesus Christ. Without Christ, mankind is at war with God, hostile to God, bent on doing evil, altogether corrupt. However, 
According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus is our peace. And Jesus, by destroying the wall of hostility, has brought about peace between sinful man and God. By laying his life down on a cross of wood, he made way for us to be right with the Father. Colossians 1.20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As the Prince of Peace, Jesus quelled our rebellion against God at the cross by taking upon himself our punishment. And God was pleased with his sinless son's perfect sacrifice. And those of us who have renounced sin and have trusted in Jesus are considered holy and blameless before God through Christ's sinless life and sacrificial work on the cross. And God is pleased with us, not because of us, but because of the faith that he has given us to trust Jesus. The Prince of Peace, who is peace, has brought about peace between God and man. And the Prince of Peace is the only one who can bring peace between people. He's the only one who can destroy hostility man has with one another. So when you see signs this season that say peace on earth, remember that peace can only come in and through Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there will be wars. There will be factions. There will be hatred. There will be discord. With Christ, man can live in harmony with one another. Worship team, if you would come up, please. Maybe there are some here today who are finding themselves to be much like the people in Isaiah's day. Maybe you're angry at God, wandering restlessly in despair and darkness, without hope, without God. In this world, may the Lord remove the blinders off of your eyes so that you can see your sinfulness. May you see that you deserve nothing good, that you deserve hell. A child was born for you, a son was given for you as a perfect sacrifice for your sins. I implore you to ask God for forgiveness. I pray that you would acknowledge the risen Christ and that God would show you mercy and grant you faith to believe and that you would be reconciled to the Father you who are an enemy of God. You know, they say that during the Christmas season, there are more unhappy people than during any other time of the year. 
There are more suicides this time of year than any other. There is more depression, more more discouragement, more despair. And the world has a lot to offer at Christmas time. Jewelry, electronics, clothing, entertainment. But none of those things bring lasting peace. Souls may find temporary satisfaction in those things, but that satisfaction will soon fade away. The peace that one has with God when born again does not fade away. It is eternal. So even in the midst of the hardest trials Christians face, the most trying times, there's peace. There's the Prince of Peace. He is our peace. And because we have the Prince of Peace, those of us who are born again, who love Jesus only because he first loved us, we can say without a shadow of a doubt that it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul because I have been bought. A son has been given for me. And he's my wonderful counselor. He's my almighty God. He's my father from eternity. And he's my prince of peace. No matter what's going on, Christian, he's your prince of peace. And peace he gives to you, no matter what you're going through. Let's stand. We're going to sing one of my favorite hymns called It Is Well With My Soul. Because you know what? Because of Christ, it is well with my soul.